And what, what are some adjectives you would use to describe your childhood? If I was going to describe my childhood, I would just say I was just, well, I just had a sense of being disconnected, just being restless. No sense of purpose, no direction, just, just restless. And what was a time in your childhood that you felt love? Never. Today we're going to devote the whole episode to one story. It's about a crime that took place 30 years ago. And we put listener advisories at the top of all episodes. But this episode deserves a special warning. This is a story about a sex crime. And there are graphic descriptions of violence. And there is also some profanity. It's a tough episode. Some listeners may want to skip this one. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. This is Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. We first interviewed Leonard back at the beginning of 2019. That was after you got out E. Mm-hmm. This was way before the pandemic, so we were at San Quentin, as usual, doing interviews. And Erlon, you don't remember him, do you? I do and I don't. I kind of remember his face, but not really. Okay, okay. So when you first meet him, he's kind of quiet. He worked on a couple projects down in the media lab, so I would see him around. But to be honest, I don't think any of us knew much about him until he sat down to talk with us. Right. And this is where I'm going to bring our producer, John Yaya Johnson, into the story. Because, Yaya, you were there with me the day in the studio when we interviewed Leonard. That's right. Me and Ear Hustle's inside host, New York, Mm -hmm. who won't be co-hosting this episode because San Quentin is still on lockdown because of COVID. So, Yaya, you're going to help me tell this story. That's right. That day, it was the four of us all crammed into our small San Quentin studio. You, me, New York, and Leonard. Leonard told us that he was raised by his grandparents. His mom was an alcoholic and abandoned him and his siblings to move to Florida when he was only three weeks old. He told us that he never really knew her. My mother showed up on Christmas Eve. I was uh, 15 years old. The police brought her home because she was blind, so they couldn't leave her at the bus station, so the police brought her to the house. I remember looking at this lady. She had on this long black... It wasn't actually real fur, but it was like a fur coat. And I remember looking at her like, who is this lady? You know, my great-grandma was like, this is your mother. I never had a bond with my mother. I never had that parent bond. It was just, okay, she's my mother, but it was just, this is this lady. I really didn't have any feelings towards her, good or bad. Leonard grew up in a small town in South Carolina in the early 1960s. Whites lived on one side of town and blacks on the other. I remember going to the grocery store one day with my great-grandmother. She got some items. She didn't have enough money. She was only short, like maybe 20 cents, something like that. And i never forget how the lady talked to her. It was a bag of sugar, two-pound bag of sugar. She snatched it out of her hand and told her, that's the problem with you niggers, you know what I mean? And she took the sugar and put it back. But i never forget that look in my great-grandmother's face, how how demeaning, how dehumanized she was in that moment. I'll never forget that look. My brother was with me at the time, and when we left the store, I don't know, it's like we just knew, okay, we got to do something. Later that night, me and my brother burned the store down. We started on fire. That store burned down. See, I'm not making excuses whatsoever. But growing up in South Carolina, being constantly reminded that I was nothing but a little nigger boy. What the hell did I do? I'm eight years old. I went from a sense of not only did my mother abandon me, but the world around me that I found myself in had stripped me of my, my uh, identity, had stripped me of my, my human dignity, had abandoned me. When Leonard was 12, he got sent to live in a children's home run by the Methodist Church. One day, he got in trouble for leaving the grounds without permission. My house mother, she beat the crap out of me. (laughs) And uh, 
I guess if you want to call it, you know, she made me I sleep, sleep with her, you know. She made me sleep with her. I had sex with her. So first she beat the crap out of you, and then she lured you into her bed to have sex with her? No, well, she just kind of, like, told me I was staying down there with her that night. And so I, I slept in the bed with her, and then we ended up having sex. So your first sexual encounter with with another person, I guess, mixes violence and sex together in a pretty obvious way. Yes. So what did that make you think about sex? I looked at sex as just, I guess it's just, it was just something that, you know, if you, you wanted, if you wanted it, you should, you know, I guess you could get it by whatever means necessary. So how would you describe 17-year-old Lennon? That's our co-host inside San Quentin, Rasan New York Thomas. Restless. <laughs> just well, restless. Who were you? What, what kind of haircut did you have? Um, what kind of dreams did you have? How did you see your life working out? I always had a fascination with space. I always, I always wanted to be an astronaut. And I had these dreams that I would go to the Air Force and then from there go, go join NASA. And I wanted to go into space. That was one thing that I always wanted to do, you know. I was always by myself. I was always like a private person, you know. I didn't want to be exposed. What does that mean? I didn't want to be exposed that that I didn't have a mother, that I didn't have parents, you know, that I came from pretty much a poor family. I didn't want to be exposed. Leonard spent most of his youth basically just drifting. His first trip was down to Florida to reunite with his mom, but that didn't work out. On his way back, he got a ride from a guy who was heading to New York. The guy offered Leonard a job selling produce out of a truck. Leonard stayed with him for two years, and then he was off hitchhiking again. That was pretty much the pattern. He'd hitch a ride somewhere, stay there for a little while, but he never really got attached to anyone or anything. So for how many years did you live like that? I'd say from 17 to like probably 25 you just traveled and you'd stay with different people. Yeah. And where would you stay when you weren't staying with these people who took you in? Uh, a lot of time I, I stuffed in uh, abandoned cars and stuff like that. Or I would sleep in uh, buildings that was under construction. A few times when I was fortunate I got a job, I, you know, I got like an apartment or something like that. You didn't have a home base anywhere? Uh, I Travel. I used to. I used to go back and forth across country. I would hitchhike, but and then sometimes I would stop. People would like, you know, give me a job or something like that. I would work from them like a day or so, and then I would, and then I, they would pay me money, and then I would leave. At the time, I was using crack cocaine, and I had been doing uh, robberies and stuff to support my drug habit. But you know, in my mind, I told them, okay, as long as I just rob white people, I'll. Some kind of way, this is this is okay. This is reparations. Yeah, this is like uh, okay. I'm paying Whitey back for uh, you know for enslaving black people. So if I just rob white people, I'm just even the score. That was my twisted thinking. On October fourth, nineteen ninety, Leonard got into a car with a guy who was heading south from the Bay Area, driving down along the coast. He dropped Leonard off in a town called Carmel. Carmel is a very small, really beautiful little town a couple hours south of San Francisco. Leonard had been dropped off in the parking lot at Point Lobo State Park, and the first thing he did was start looking for a car that he could steal. I said, oh, this is a park, and I saw cars. I was like, oh, this would be a good place to do a lick right here. There was like a little parking area for people to park their cars and stuff. And so I'm looking in cars, I'm hoping that, you know, a car is open. If somebody left their keys, I can just get in the car and drive off. I don't know why I decided to just go down this trail. I went down this trail just to see where it went, what was down there. You know, it might be, you know, I don't know, maybe a house or something, whatever. What time of day was it? It was in the evening, probably 
around, I'd say probably around five, six o'clock. Okay, so just a warning. This next section is a very graphic description of an assault. Right when I decided to turn around on this trail, because there's nothing down there, right? I see this lady coming. I had already made in my mind, okay, I'm going to rob her. She's out here. She has to have a car. I'm going to rob her. It was just something about as she's walking this way and I'm walking this way, she could sense me that something was about to happen. She, in other words, she could sense danger. You know, you say you could feel someone's energy. And she's like probably about maybe 30 feet away from me. But the, the energy is like so, it's like as soon as she saw me and I saw her, it's like, okay, this is my victim. It's like she knew that. But for some reason, it's like she kept walking. She just kept walking like, okay, maybe this guy would just pass me. So when we got right up to one another, I actually just like, how you doing? And so I gave her the impression that I was just going to, you know, just walk past her. As soon as I past her, I just turned around and I grabbed her around the neck and I snatched her off the trail into the woods. I remember I had, I had my hand around, around her neck. I grabbed the Adam's apple because I didn't want her to scream. I was really just like squeezing it, you know. I remember telling her to shut up and then she she tried to struggle and fight, and then I remember socking her. I became enraged because she struggled. At that point, it's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you now. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you. I ripped the clothes off of her. I flipped her over, and then I started sodomizing her. I wanted to cause her pain. I wanted to to punish her. I wanted to really humiliate her. I wanted her to just, just, you know, to feel what it is to be powerless, to be, to be, you know what I mean? I mean, literally at that moment, you were having those thoughts? Or is that now you're thinking that? No, I was having those thoughts at that that moment. I just really wanted to just dehumanize her. I sodomized her first, and then I made her uh, uh, oily capillate me, and then I had sex with her. I gagged her with her own panties, and I just left her there. She struggled most of the time, but then at some point she just kind of like gave up. What do you think was going through her mind? She probably thought that I was going to kill her. Mary's two and a half years older than me. And can you tell me about tell me about her growing up? What, what was she like as a sister? She was the the older sister. I was the follower. She was the leader. She was very adventurous, fearless. Mm. Um, She was always very outgoing, had lots of friends. I remember one incident where um, we were spending the summer in Maine. My dad uh, got us a little rowboat and we would go out by ourselves. I can't believe that we did this at that young age, but we would go out in this little rowboat out into very quiet, kind of a little inlet bay. I had kind of just learned to swim at that time. And Mary said, oh, jump in, Patty. You can swim. You can swim. I jumped into this water, and of course, it's like ice cold, and just took my breath away. And I started floundering around, 
And so Mary jumped over and got me and got me back in the boat. She was always the one there to, you know, to pull me up by the collar. She was like the one that always went ahead, and I followed her. This is Pat. She and her sister Mary grew up in a military family, and they moved around a lot. Mary, who later changed her name to Mara, went to college in Utah. She met her husband there, and the two of them moved out to California. Mara and her husband were both artists. According to Pat, it was a good marriage, but then he started drinking heavily. Mara stuck with him for years trying to help him, but eventually filed for divorce, and that's when Mara moved herself to Carmel. What was her life like in Carmel, and did you ever visit her? Oh, yes. I would go out there on vacation and spend a week, usually a week, um, with her in Carmel. And um, it was always, we always had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, What did you think about her art? Her art was very beautiful. I've got many of her paintings hanging in my house. And she did a lot of them. She loved this area. She loved the, the... the gulf, the water, the seagulls, the pelicans. So a lot of her paintings reflected that. On October 4th, as Leonard was catching a ride to Carmel, Mara had been planning to drive to Big Sur about an hour south. But there was too much fog, so she pulled over at a gas station and called her friend to make dinner plans. It was still light out. So she decided to take a walk in Point Lobo State Park. She hiked down to the point and spent some time there thinking about a new piece she was working on. Then she turned around and headed back to her car. And that's where she encountered Leonard. Leonard said hi, Mara said hi back. Then he grabbed her and dragged her off the trail. Could she have done anything to stop you? No. So I guess what is confusing to me is you said you wanted to rob somebody. So how did that go from robbing somebody to assaulting them like that? I think what it was, it really was the fact that she she fought. And then she fought, she struggled, she fought. And then I think my thing was that I wanted to just really just show her who was in control. I wanted to really just cause her pain. What did you think of yourself after you did it? I felt, well, I felt empowered. I felt like, in some twisted way, I felt like this was like this really sense of uh, of relief. Uh, you know, I have, I've gotten back at the world. You know, I've, I've shown the world my pain. And I had the sense that, you know, I finally got back at women. Hmm. And why did you have to get back at women? Because... The, the one woman that should have cared for me, she abandoned me. And the white female at that time in the 60s, I couldn't even look at the white female. You know, I carried, I carried that with me. And even though I wanted, at times I wanted the white female, it's just that I, I don't know. In that moment, I just felt, okay, I finally got even. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have to say, when he was talking, I just remember thinking, oh, please, God, please don't say that. Because, man, you are really feeding in to some unfortunate stereotypes about being a black man. Yeah, that was my thinking also, Nige. Mm-hmm. I try not to view people through a racist lens because I've been treated that way. So it's really hard to hear Leonard use racism as a justification. Yeah. And he's reinforcing a stereotype about black men that's caused a lot of harm. As a black man, I never want to be seen that way. Honestly, the team wondered if we should even tell this story. Yeah, but from day one, I wanted us to do this story. Oh, me too. I mean, a lot of true stories are hard to tell. There's just no way around it. And one of the things we really try to avoid on this show are stories that are just about redemptive narratives. They tie up nicely and feel good, but life isn't like that. Yep, and we can't shy away from it. And, like it or not, this is how Leonard tells his story. I always had, well, I always had, I wanted to, like, 
prove to the world that I mattered, you know, that I was somebody that regardless regards to what I was told in my childhood, you know, being reminded daily that I was, you know, a nigger growing up in the South. I'm going to get my opportunity and I'm going to prove to the world that I am somebody. It was just power, just total, total uh, domination. I want, I want you to feel my pain tenfold. And you thought that rape would be the best way to articulate that pain at that point? At that point, yeah, in that moment, yeah. For a while, Leonard's version of the story, the way he described it in that one interview we did with him in San Quentin, was the only version we had. So we started doing our own research. We called the court in Monterey near Carmel and got copies of the records from Leonard's case. These records included testimony from Mara herself. And that testimony is really striking. You have to keep in mind that this statement was given only a month after her attack. So you have to picture it. She's in court, being questioned by Leonard's attorney on these really graphic, specific details, Yaya. Like, how did she get on her knees? When did he flip her over? Exactly how many times did he hit her? Was his hand open? Was it closed? All of this stuff that she has to relive. And she is so incredibly composed. I, I, I don't know how she did it. The court records also included accounts by other people who were there that day, including people who actually helped Mara right after the attack. Among those are a married couple, Lynn's and Terry Dorman. Okay, hi, Nigel. Okay, I'm Terry. Okay. And there's Lynn's. Hi. Nice to meet you. Lynn's and Terry are retired now. They live in Tennessee, but in the early 1990s, they lived near Carmel. They often worked alongside each other on cases. Lynn's as a detective and Terry as the district attorney's victim advocate. Initially, Terry was reluctant to even talk about the case. She is still fiercely protective of Mara, even 30 years after this crime took place. But after some conversation, she agreed to talk to us. And we should warn people again here, this next part gets graphic. One of the very first things I did for Mara was I went out and bought her a brand new pair of panties because he took her own and he stuffed them in her mouth. So I made sure she had brand new ones to take home. She had a black eye. Her um, tooth, one or two of her teeth had been knocked out. She lost additional teeth later as a result of the impact, if I recall. Mara told the court that Leonard threatened to kill her if she didn't stop screaming. He bit her ear all the way through. He strangled her until she started to lose consciousness, and then he left her, tied up with her own shoelaces. Do you have, do either of you have uh, memories of your first impression of, of her? Uh, yes, I, I do. It's hard to describe, but she was uh, very peaceful, is a, a way I can put it. Uh, she was calm. Obviously, I could tell just from her facial expression that uh, she was very upset, but she was able to give me complete details as to what exactly had happened to her. Mara had a, a very high level of dignity. I really have never met anyone like her, ever. What amazed me is how calm she was. Despite yeah. despite the uh, terrible thing that had happened to her. Could you describe what she told you in terms of how she ran into Leonard? And, and, and I hate to ask this, uh, how she described the attack? She basically said she was sitting there in a nice area. And he comes up and she says hi. And he answers back and then moves on. And then the next thing she knows, he comes back, and uh, they have some kind of an exchange, and uh, I don't remember now exactly what was said, uh, but he just uh, attacked her. He slugged her in the mouth, drug her off into the woods, and then 
when he was finished, he also took a picture of himself. He took her camera, and there was a picture of himself in there. He told her he wanted her keys to her car, and if she lied to him about where her car was, then um, he would come back and kill her. It was heinous. <laughs> Leonard tried to get away, but a couple of park rangers spotted him up near the freeway, and he was arrested quickly. The trial took place about three months after the attack. Leonard was found guilty on eight counts, including rape and kidnapping. On February 28th, he appeared before the judge for sentencing. Mara gave a victim impact statement, and according to Leonard, she said something remarkable. She said, uh, Your Honor, this man that hurt me and hurting me, he has hurt himself. She said it was like a dark force that came over him that day. She said, I'm not the type of person that seeks uh, revenge, a retribution. She was, she was more concerned about my well-being than her own well-being. What, what, what did she mean? I, I understand the words, but what did she really mean, and what does it really mean to you? The way that I, I inter- her words is that, because I was in such a dark place in my life at that time, I had the capacity to do what I did to her. That saying, hurt people hurt others. By me physically hurting her, I also hurt myself. It also caused me trauma because I'm carrying this around. The way you describe, like, she forgave you? Um, I don't know if I'm going to say that she was forgiving me. I think what it was, I think she, well, I think she forgave me, but I, I think what it was is that I just really had the sense that she was more concerned about my well-being, about me going forward in life, as opposed to her well-being. Yeah, that just sounds so incredible because the crime you described, like you did her horribly wrong. Yeah. She did not deserve that in no way, shape, or form. And the fact that she could be more concerned with your well-being than hers, um, how did that make you feel in that, that- moment? That hurt worse than the 60 years that they gave me. Because it's like, I did this to you, I did this hideous thing to you. And then I, 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 I can generally sense that you genuinely care more about my well-being in that moment than you do your own. It's so hard for me to believe after what I'm gonna reiterate what New York said of really vicious crime, she had reached that Realization. I mean, that seems like something that would take people decades to get to. I can only trust that she was able to, to heal and to, you know, move on, move on with her life. I, I kind of got that sense that she was that type of person, that strong type of person that was able to do that. I, you know, I saw her as a very strong woman, a very spiritual woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I remember looking over at you during this interview and thinking, you're not buying it. Yeah, I didn't believe him one bit. Because when I hear this, Nigel, what I hear is Leonard still putting himself in the center of the story. Mm. It's all about his needs. First, his needs to injure this woman, and then his needs to believe that she let him off the hook for what he did. Yeah. In my view, he's not holding himself accountable for this crime at all. At San Quentin, I've heard a lot of guys talk about accountability, but I want to know, like, what does it mean to you specifically? Yeah, so Nigel, accountability is something that comes up in groups a lot. Mm -hmm. And for me, it means accepting responsibility for my actions. Mm. You know, coming to an understanding that I harmed a victim. And by accepting accountability, it allows you to put yourself in the shoes of the people that you've harmed hopefully to convince you that that harm is something that you never want to cause anybody else. I um, committed a robbery, Mm -hmm. and I always thought that robbery was a victimless crime because the money belonged to the bank. But when I started to accept accountability, I realized that 
I psychologically traumatized a person. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear Leonard speak about uh, I had to let the world feel my pain and people had to understand my hurt and the way that I felt appeared to me to be a justification to perpetrate his crimes against humanity. And so I didn't buy it one bit. Do you think that Leonard sees his victim as a person? No. I mean, the way Leonard described the crime, I think he's seen Mara and potentially other victims as this concept. This concept of him being abused and victimized and him needing to strike out Mm -hmm. in general. You know, so I don't think that he's internalized Mara as a human being. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's not accountability at all. Yeah, that line about she cared more about my well-being than her own, yeah, yeah, it really made me wonder, what did Mara say that day in court? Could you read the the victim impact statement that you talked about? Terry Dorman was there the day that Mara stood up and addressed the court. 30 years later, she still keeps a copy of the transcript. So the court, meaning Judge Wunderlich, uh, said, you have the opportunity and right as the victim of crime to make a statement to the court at this time. Proceed. Your Honor and the court, this has been an act that is repugnant to God, man, and woman. It has been an unimaginable trauma. I could make all kinds of poetic analogies of the atrocity of a kind of violence against any person, and especially of a woman of a rape of this violent nature. I consider myself a peaceful and loving and gentle person. This kind of violence has unimaginable trauma on me. The healing process is a long one. The physical healing, I'm a strong and healthy person. As you can see, I have been healed physically. But there are many layers of healing that have to occur in something like that, emotional, mental. That healing is continuing to go on. I'm not a person that demands revenge. I demand change and positive transformation. The only thing that can heal that in our society is understanding and love. I pray that the assailant, the man who hurt me, will realize that in hurting me, he has hurt himself. I pray that he's able to understand the force of darkness that came over him when he hurt me. My faith in human nature has not been damaged. In fact, it's been strengthened because I have realized that no human being who is healthy, black or white, and in harmony could possibly do this, inflict this kind of violence on another human being. And no man, black or white, a healthy man, would be capable of such depraved behavior in regards to a woman. I thank everyone that's helped me, and I hope that this provides an example for other women who have to endure this trauma to know that they have the strength to make the choice to become stronger and more courageous human beings. That's pretty much all I have to say. Everything has been said. Um... It's so interesting to hear that because clearly it's it's not a forgiveness. Um, no. And it's been somehow it's like a myth has been built around that. It's been twisted to yeah, twisted. his own narrative, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> there was something else that Terry told us, a detail Leonard hadn't mentioned in his recounting of the trial and sentencing something he said in court the day after Mara read her statement. When he stood up and was walked out by the bailiff, he turned around and he yelled out, see ya in 35, and then he was walked out. That was his statement. This is Global Telling. You have a prepaid call from Leonard. An inmate at 
The California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California. This call and your telephone... It had been over a year since we interviewed Leonard. We haven't been able to go into San Quentin since the pandemic started, but we really wanted to ask Leonard about what Terry had told us. Hey, uh, hey Leonard. Uh, it's Yaya again. So, uh, um, after your interview, we decided to, uh, you know, uh, actually do this story, right? So right. since the inter- since the interview, we've learned uh-huh. that we've learned that at the end of the trial, after Mira actually made her victim's impact statement, that you shouted right. out that you shouted out, "See you in 35." What did you mean by that? I remember saying, see you at 35. What I was saying was that no matter what life threw at me, that I was going to persevere. I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about her or my impact that I, that I had on her and others. I was just thinking about myself in the moment. You know, it probably to her, it felt like you were threatening her. And I just want to ask you, what, what, in your mind, was that a threat? The inner turmoil that I was going through at that time in my mind, you know, you know, I, me making a statement like that, it probably was directly towards her. Mm-hmm. Like I say, I was in—that's the space that I was in at that time. So, if I pushed you and asked you if the Leonard back then, if I asked the Leonard back then, was the Leonard back then threatening? I think the Leonard back then was, but not just threatening her. I think it was just threatening. I think it was like humanity. It was like it was directed towards humanity. Mm-hmm. It was like you, you know, because like I said, I was in that space, and I was like, you know, you can't stop me. I'll be back. Mm-hmm. You know, oh. in that moment, it's like I'm gonna continue to be me. We also felt like it was important for Leonard to know what we were saying about him in this piece. I want you to know that when we listen back to this interview, we really don't right. hear you talking about or having empathy for Meryl or thinking about her perspective and what she went through. To me, that's the kind of empathy for your victim that is a big part of what it means to be accountable. And so, uh, what do you think about that? I don't think I'm thinking about myself. I mean, I don't know. I I, I don't have all of the answers, you know what I mean? It's just, it's not, not that I'm trying to make it about me. I just know that her words, her words, they resonated with me. They stayed with me. And and when I finally, you know, arrived to that place, you know, only then did I realize, you know, uh, uh, the impact of my actions. There are no words that that can convey. Uh, I, I just I don't have words. I'm lost for words. It's just it's uh yeah. I'm just, I don't have oh. words. But you didn't attend the trial, or? Oh, no. No, no. Okay. No, um, I did not. I I didn't hear anything about the trial. As close as they were, Mara didn't really talk to her sister, Pat, about what had happened to her. It wasn't something that she wanted to talk about a lot. I knew about her injuries, uh, which were quite extensive. Do you think that she was protecting, like she didn't talk to you about it because she was protecting you somehow? No, I don't think she was protecting me. I think she just didn't want to dwell on it. It wasn't going to be something that defined her. Being violently raped and beaten cannot not affect someone's life forever. Right. But she chose not to dwell on it and to have it define her. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we've heard from several people that, that your sister talked about, I'm not going to say forgiveness, but she talked in terms of having compassion for him very quickly, even at, at the trial. What do you make of that? Hate is a very toxic emotion. Mm-hmm. And for people to carry hate and those kind of emotions within themselves, it, it doesn't do any harm to the other person. It harms yourself. My sister made a conscious choice that she was not going to let those kinds of emotions 
eat away at herself. He is going to suffer consequences of his actions uh, mm-hmm. for many years, and so for her to have compassion upon him, I can I can see that that she was going to release those feelings from herself in order to not have it eat away at herself. You you talked about her really honoring her body and also that she was very spiritual and you are as well. You know, like I can't get my mind around what he did and I just wonder how you think about that. Well, myself personally, I choose not to judge because I do not know what led him to a point where he would commit something like that. I don't know. I think it's something that's so deep within themselves that it will always be there. But there again, personally, it's not for me to judge him. Mm-hmm. He will receive his judgment when he stands before his Savior, his Jesus, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, who will judge him. Mm-hmm. It's not for me to judge. So from from your perspective, what what do you think we owe owe her with this story? I think that we owe to Mara a true accounting of of this crime against her. That it was unprovoked, that it was heinous, that it was violent and brutal, but also her truth that she chose to transcend the pain emotionally and physically in order to live a life that she felt would fulfill her need to have peace. In the years after the attack, Pat says that Mara went on a religious pilgrimage to India. She painted, wrote poetry, and sang in a choir. She was also single and, according to her sister, committed to staying that way. So did you go back to Carmel again and spend time with her there? Um, yeah. You mm-hmm. know, I, we visited. I would go and spend a week or so. And outside of Carmel, there's a Zen Buddhist monastery. Mm-hmm. And we would go there in the summertime. They open it up to the public, and we oh, would yeah. go spend probably three days there, which was beautiful. It was a, a really wonderful experience. We did that a couple times. But did you notice a, a change in her? I mean, like in her spirit or her her vivaciousness or anything like that? Um, no, I don't think that I did. Mm-hmm. She was still the same person that I remember. She was always an early riser. She would get up and she did meditation in the mornings. I think she possibly became even more spiritual after that. Mara was a hiker and a vegetarian. She was in great health. That changed in 2004. She had gone to her hairdresser, and her hairdresser had seen kind of a little lesion on the back of her head, thought it was maybe an ingrown hair or something like that, mm-hmm. and she went back a couple months later to have her hair redone, mm-hmm. and the hairdresser said, um, Mara, this thing on, the, on your head looks like it's getting worse. I think you really need to go have this checked out. She took care of her body. She was very, you know, she was just the poster child of a healthy person. And then all of a sudden, one day, she just got deathly ill. I mean, she was, couldn't stand up. She, her equilibrium was off. Pat got a call from Mara's roommate, who told her Mara couldn't even walk. The roommate and another friend carried her to the car and took her to the hospital. And, um, of course, the first thing they did was to run some scans on her and found that she was covered. I mean, she had cancer everywhere. 
And what was causing the symptoms was she had uh, a couple tumors in her brain, and they were pressing on her optic nerve. Mm. And that was what was causing this, the nausea and the, the not being able to stand up. That was on a Saturday. I made arrangements, got on a plane Sunday. 26 days later, she was dead. <clears throat> wow. She, she was certain she was going to get out of there. She did not realize that she was dying. She was going to beat this thing. My sister... She loved her hair. Mm -hmm. She had very fine, baby fine hair, and she took very good care of her hair. I came in one morning, and they had given her a shower and had washed her hair, and it was just a matted, holy mess. And she didn't want anybody to take care of it but me. And so I was combing her hair, and I got some spray that you spray on baby's hair to get the tangles out yeah. I was combing it just minute pieces at a time and it was just, her hair was just coming out in clumps in my hand and I didn't let her know that I just put the hair in my pocket it was a very spiritual experience for me because the morning that she passed away. I came in and I just knew. I said, this is the day. I knew it. And I kneeled down by the side of her bed. And at that point, she was kind of in a, in that kind of an in-between place. She was mm -hmm. conscious, but she had her eyes closed. She was able to chew ice chips. And I just said, uh, Mary, it's time for you to go. I said, everything's taken care of. Everything is fine. Mom and dad are waiting for you. You need to go. It, it's, it's fine. And I just talked to her very quietly, quietly, quietly until she took her last breath. Two of her best friends were in the room with me at the time, and we just were very quiet. Um, we didn't go out, rush out and tell the nurses or the doctors. We just sat with her for a little while and then finally I went out and let them know that she had passed. I asked if, if it would be alright if we cleaned her up and they said certainly. So they brought in warm, wet towels and everything and we cleaned her and fixed her as best we could and, and that was it. She had completed what she needed to do here on Earth, and it was time for her to go. Um, I have to say, I mean, this is off the story a little bit, but I, I hope that I would have the, the um, fortitude and the love to do what you did for your sister if I'm ever in that situation. I'm so touched by that. It's really incredible. So I thank you for sharing that. Sorry. No, that's fine. That's it's, all right. Yeah, it's really something. Will you listen to this story when it comes out? Um, yeah, I will if you let me know. Uh, of course, we'll let you know. Um, I don't know how to feel about you listening to it. I mean, I feel like you've, you've really come to terms with what happened to her and, and her dying. I hope it won't be upsetting. No, it won't. Her dying, uh, you know, it's unfortunate yeah. that her life was cut short. Um, but she lived a very full full life. She had wonderful memories and did a lot of things, um, amazing things. And um, she basically was very, very happy. I think she, you know, did not carry that karma, the negative karma of the rape with her to the other side. She was a beautiful, beautiful person. Leonard is scheduled for release from San Quentin in 2022.
If you or someone you know has been affected by sexual assault, you can get help by calling the National Sexual Assault Helpline at 800-656-HOPE. Thanks to Martina Luckschneider, Manya Davis, Terry Thornton, Katie James, Oscar Luna, Rebecca Weicker, Sonia Shaw, and Lloyd Farnham for their help with this episode. This episode was produced by me, Nigel Poor, Amy Standen, John Yaya Johnson, Erlon Woods, Rasan New York Thomas, and Bruce Wallace. This episode was sound designed and engineered by Antoine Williams with music by Antoine and David Jossie. Shabnan Sigmund is our digital producer. Julie Shapiro is the executive producer for Radiotopia. Ear Hustle would like to thank Acton Warden, Ron Broomfield, and as you know, every episode of Ear Hustle has to be approved by this guy here. This is Lieutenant Sam Robinson, the public information officer at San Quentin State Prison. And it seems like each season, uh, Ear Hustle does an episode that's really, really heavy and it weighs on you. And um, uh, with this episode, I know this episode checks off all of that. Very, very thought-provoking, and I think gives a listener, no matter what perspective you're in, um, something to truly weigh in and think about. So with that, before I give approval to this episode, I'd just like to take a little time and say to my family, we had a loss on December 1st this year. My uncle, Winthrop Marshall, who we call Wynn, he passed away unexpectedly. And to all that were in his circle, they knew how profound an impact he had on everyone, and he will be very, very truly missed by his children and his siblings and all the people that he had the opportunity to interact with. So with that, with all the weightiness of this episode and the weightiness of putting myself out there with the death of my uncle, I will say that I approve this episode. This podcast was made possible with support from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, working to redesign the justice system by building power and opportunity for communities impacted by incarceration. Ear Hustle is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of independent, listener-supported podcasts. Some of the best podcasts around. Hear more at radiotopia.fm. I'm Nigel Poor. I'm Erlon Woods. And I'm John Yahya Johnson. Thanks for listening. Radio Tokyo.